Hi, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Chuck. And in order to keep up with the and does, I always identify as an adult child of (laughs) non-alcoholics. And that's a bitch because I don't have anybody to blame. I asked BJ how I would know her. She said she'd be she was squat short, squatty, and had big boobs. And I saw The funny thing is, we saw her 80 miles out of town. (laughs) I bring you uh, greetings from the People's Republic of Orange County. Every time I have the privilege of doing this, I kind of feel like one of uh, Zsa Zsa Gabor's new husbands. I know what's expected of me, I just don't know how to make it interesting. <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like to welcome the newcomers, but before I do, I'm sure we have some Al-Anons here. And I always like to welcome the Al-Anons and remind them if it wasn't for us, there wouldn't be any of you. I have to be careful. <clears throat> I was in, Jeannie, Barbara and I were in Palm Springs and I was sharing one night. And while they were having the birthdays, one of the ladies that got up to take a cake spent about 10 minutes uh, thanking Betty Ford for coming out of the woodwork and how grateful she was and how many thousands of ladies must have been saved over the years because of her doing that. And I was sitting there snickering to myself because I suddenly realized as she was talking that no wonder this country was so screwed up we had an untreated Al-Anon running it for a couple of years. <laughs> and and it, was a, it was a typical alcohol, alcoholic Al-Anon relationship. Betty did all the drinking and Jerry did all the falling down. Now, a couple of weeks or months later, I was in Pasadena sharing, and I shared that story. I got permission from the head Al-Anon Elsa to be able to do that. And I was sharing that story, and after the meeting, Fred, the secretary, came up to me, and he said, Chuck, I think you better go out the back door. And I said, why, Fred? He said, the Al-Anons are out front waiting on you, and they're hot. So I headed toward the back door, and I stopped, and I said, wait a minute, Fred, you said they're all Al-Anons, right? He said, that's right. I said, no problem, I'll just go out front and promise them I'll never do it again, and they'll forgive me. (laughs) I'd like to welcome the newcomers that are here tonight, and if you're wondering if you're in the right place or not, I would rather be in this room tonight by mistake than sitting in some bar by mistake. And if you're one of those people that are out there spending money you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like, chances are you're an alcoholic. (laughs) And if you're also one of those people that can still use credit and you know if one's good, two's better, and if you can get it on credit, you'll take four, I know you're an alcoholic. So you just keep coming back And if this is not your first meeting, uh, you may as well stay here. You may not have had your last drink, but you've enjoyed your last drink. And if you'll stick around long enough and do the things that are suggested by the people that have come here before you, such as read the book, go to meetings, talk to other alcoholics, and lately I've added, try not to drink between meetings. And the reason I add that, I was passing a friend of mine at a Monday night stag I go to every Monday night when I'm home, and he was talking to a newcomer, and he was angry, and he said uh, he was talking to him about drinking. And the newcomer looked at him, and he said, I do everything you tell me to do. I read the book, go to meetings, talk to other alcoholics, but you've never told me not to drink. So I always suggest it's best just not to drink. It's hard to sober up that way. And if you'll stick around long enough 
I can't guarantee you that Alcoholics Anonymous will open the gates of heaven and let you in, but it will open the gates of hell and let you out. And that's all I was looking for when I got here. And I know a lot of people in different areas usually get to Alcoholics Anonymous through the courts. We call that in Orange County a nudge from the judge. <laughs> and sometimes those folks don't feel comfortable in AA meetings. And I usually share a story about how my grandfather's sponsor, who was a judge, got to Alcoholics Anonymous primarily to make you people feel more at home. But my friend Bob promised his wife several times he would not drink anymore. And on one of those occasions, Bob went two whole weeks without a drink. And he had a real bad day in court, and on his way home that night, he stopped at his favorite gin mill just to have one drink. And he woke up several hours later, and he had thrown up all over his nice suit. And driving home, he had no idea what he would tell his wife when he got there. And he walked in the door, and she met him with those cold, beady, little Al-Anon eyes that we've all tried to, uh, all had to look at at one time or another. And she said, Bob, for God's sakes, it's only been two weeks, and you promised me you wouldn't drink anymore. And look at you, you're a mess and you stink. Well, with his keen mind, he looked her straight in those eyes, and he said, but it's not the way it appears. On the way home tonight, it was pouring down rain, it was cold and wet, and I saw this young man hitchhiking, and I felt sorry for him. And I gave him a ride, and I didn't know he was drunk, and he got in the car, and he got sick, and he threw up all over me. But I took care of him, I took him down to the jail, and I had him locked up, and I'll deal with him first thing in the morning. Well, she bought that story, <clears throat> and the next morning, Bob was sitting in his chambers, and the phone rang, and he picked it up, and it was his wife. And she said, Bob, have you seen that young man that threw up all over you last night? And he thought real quick, and he said, no, dear, but I've checked the docket. He's the first one on it, and I've already decided that I'm going to give him 30 days. She said, Bob, I think you better give him 90 days because he's shitting your pants, too. <laughs> Bob, celebrated, Bob celebrated 27 years in our fellowship last January. So it's not how you get here that matters. It's what you do after you get here that makes the difference. Now tonight, I'm supposed to share with you what it used to be like, what happened, and why it hasn't changed a hell of a lot. <laughs> I was born sober into a Southern Baptist family, and it was terrific to see C.D. here. He's only a few miles from my hometown in Savannah. And I was born into that Southern Baptist family, and my grandmother raised me until I was almost 12 years old. And she passed away, and I was taken in by a Jewish Orthodox family, and they sent me to a Catholic military school. Now, until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd prayed to whom it may concern all my life. But that's not the reason I became an alcoholic. I became an alcoholic because I started drinking alcohol. And I like to make that very clear these days because there's a lot of people out there that are going back out and drinking because they think they can blame somebody else because they drink too much or they're an alcoholic. And I honestly believe for me that the only reason I ever became an alcoholic is simply because I drank alcohol. And I never want to forget the very first drink that I ever took. I had already finished school, and I was home on leave from the Air Force, and I'd gone to a theater, and it was late. And on the way home, I stopped at a private club, and I walked in, and I went straight into the bar, and I sat down and ordered a bottle of beer. Now, the bartender that was on duty that night had known me all my life. And he looked at me, and he said, Mr. Charles, have you started drinking since you left home? And I said, no, John, I've never had a drink in my life, but tonight I'm just going to have one bottle of beer. And he gave me a Miller's High Life, and I picked it up, and I drank it as fast as I could, 
because I was afraid somebody might walk in that club and see me drinking. Now the reason I need to remember that drink that night so vividly this night, sitting at that bar, I had no marital problems. I wasn't even married. (laughs) I had no job problems because I was doing exactly what I had wanted to do ever since I was a teenager, and I'd gone to one of the best military schools in the world to get ready for it, and I had no financial problems. And sitting there that night for no reason whatsoever, I blew almost 22 years of total sobriety. And I know standing here tonight that that same thing could happen all over again. Because it's not when everything is coming down on me that I have the fear of drinking again. It's when everything is going okay. I've learned alcoholics can handle impending doom. We can't handle impending good. It's when she's okay and the kids are okay and the work is okay. I get that stinking thinking that just maybe that last drunk wasn't quite that bad. So I have to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous almost on a daily basis so I can hear and see what happens to people that don't go to meetings. And it's been my experience over the years that most of those people will end up going back out and drinking again. And one of them as recent as a few weeks ago, a fellow I am close to is a doctor in the program and he made an emergency call at the hospital and he thought he recognized the lady and after he saved her and found out that last year she was on the old timer stage taking 34 years uh, cake and she was so drunk he almost didn't save her. So I kind of look at the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that I attend on a regular basis like my big fort. And those people that go outside the fort and drink again are my scouts. And those scouts keep running back in my fort with an ass full of arrows saying those Indians are still out there. (laughs) And I have found out over the years watching that it's a lot easier to stay here than to have to come back. Another reason I have to stay close to, active in, and a part of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is I know that you will always love me and you will always want me. I have to make sure on a daily basis that I love and want you. I don't know when I took that next drink. It wasn't that night for sure, but I'm quite sure it was the next day or two. And when I took it, I drank the better part of 15 years of my life almost on a daily basis. And I drank myself right up to what I call for me my death march into Alcoholics Anonymous because I locked my office door on December the 22nd to go home for Christmas and New Year's and the next conscious thing I can remember, I was driving to my (laughs) office and it was January the 5th. And I was approaching a red light not far from my house and I was having trouble getting my foot off the gas to put the brake on because my leg was shaking so bad. And I turned around and I went back to my house and I walked in and I took down a bottle of vodka and I had to make one of the biggest decisions I had ever made because I had never taken a drink on a work morning in my life. And I stood there and I stared at that bottle of vodka And I was looking at a smaller bottle next to it that was filled with Valium because at that time I had a doctor that thought alcoholism was caused by a Valium deficiency. (laughs) I have that same doctor today, but his thinking's a lot different. And I didn't want to get hooked on those funny little pills. So I took the drink. And thank God that first drink stayed down that morning because there had been a lot of Saturday and Sundays and holidays that that first drink in the morning did not stay down. And my leg quit shaking and my stomach felt better and my head seemed to clear up. And I got in my car and I drove to my office and I went upstairs and I told my staff what a fantastic holiday I had 
And I hope they had one just as good. And I couldn't remember 15 minutes from the time I locked that office on December the 22nd till that morning. Everything seemed fine till about 10 o'clock and my secretary brought some documents in that needed my signature and she stood there watching me and she noticed my hand was so tight that I couldn't even sign those papers in such a way she would allow them to even leave the office. And I told her just to leave them and I'd do them later. And when she left, I left. And I went back to my house and I had a couple of drinks and I came back and signed those papers without any problem whatsoever. And I went to lunch that day and I had my normal lunch. I had just a couple of drinks and I ate lunch and I went back to work. But a few days later, still going home to drink before I would go to the office, I found myself going to lunch just a little bit earlier and having just a few more drinks. And then I would say the hell with lunch and I would go back to work. And a few days after that, I found myself going to lunch a lot earlier, having a lot of drinks. And then I was saying the hell with lunch and the hell with going back to work. And it hit me just that fast. And I did that kind of drinking all the way through the month of January. And on February the 1st, I walked in my office about 7 o'clock in the morning and the phone was ringing and I was the only one there and I picked it up and it was my boss on the other end calling me from Dearborn, Michigan. And he proceeded to tell me I had a drinking problem and I had 30 days to do something about it. And if I didn't, it could be grounds for termination. And I told that man in no uncertain terms that nobody that far away that only saw me once or twice a year could call me on a telephone and tell me I had a drinking problem and threaten to fire me over it. And I hung up on him. By that time, <clears throat> my secretary had come in and I told her I'd be back in a few minutes and she knew that could be anything from a half hour to a half a day. And as I went to get in my car in the parking lot, it was ironic, but an acquaintance of mine at the Santa Ana Elks Club had told me a few weeks before that he was going to be buying a cocktail lounge not far from my office. And it normally opened at 10 o'clock in the morning, but he was going to start opening <coughs> about 6 or 6.30 a.m. should I ever have a need to come by. And that's exactly where I was headed, down to see Harry. And as I was driving down to Harry's place, it suddenly occurred to me <clears throat> that my very best friend, alcohol, had just turned on me. The very thing that had helped me put up with that woman, raise those kids, work in that corporate structure, and put up with them, and if you don't know who them are, you may not be alcoholic. <laughs> because we know who them are. The thing that had helped me through all of that had just turned on me and I couldn't handle it. I guess I felt just like a blind man being led into a telephone pole by a seeing eye dog. And he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a cookie and he handed it to the dog and a man next to him said, Mr. I don't understand you. That dog just walked you into that telephone pole and you're rewarding him with a cookie. He said, no, you don't understand. I have to give him the cookie to see where his head is so I can kick him in the ass. <laughs> That, that's what alcohol did to me. It fed me for the better part of 15 years of my life, and the minute I needed it the worst, it kicked me in the rear end. I got to Harry's place, and I went in and I sat down, and Harry gave me a drink, and I told Harry what my boss had called and said to me that morning. Now, Harry's version of my pressures and my responsibilities and my accomplishments was so much better than my boss's version, I just sat and listened to Harry all day. I didn't have to go back to that office and put up with that crap, but I had to go back the next morning. And I knew the heat was on, and I knew they would be calling and checking on me. So I had to alter my daily routine 
And the first thing I had to do was the hardest thing. And that was to cut my lunch hours from four hours down to two hours. But we do what we have to when that heat's on. And I did that kind of controlled drinking all the way through the month of February. March came and nothing happened. I didn't get fired. I didn't even get any threatening phone calls. And in my sick mind, I got the idea that if you worked for a company as big as I did and you held a position such as I did, they wouldn't dare fire you over alcohol unless you admitted to somebody you had a problem. So the only thing I had to do was make sure <clears throat> that I never told anybody I might have a drinking problem. So I loosened up into March. About two weeks into March, I came back from lunch one afternoon, and the private line on my telephone rang, and I picked it up. And it was a dear friend of mine whose office was down the hall from me, but he ran a different division than I did. And he asked me if I would step down there. He'd like to chat with me a minute. And I walked down to Ray's office, and when I walked in, he stood up, and he looked at me, and he said, Chuck, I just came back from Dearborn, and they're talking about you. And if you don't do something about your drinking and do it fast, they're going to fire you. They don't care how fast you progressed, and they don't care how much you've done for our company, and they don't even care how much potential you may have left. They can't afford to have you around anymore. And I looked at my friend and I told him in no uncertain terms to mind his own business. And if he was concerned about people with drinking problems, he had enough of them in his own division and he wouldn't even have to leave his office to find one of them. And I walked out and I slammed his door. When I got home that night, <clears throat> something strange happened because I told my then wife what Ray had said that afternoon. And she looked up at me that night and she said, but you don't drink that much. Now standing there that night, she might not have had any idea that I would go back home and drink in the mornings after she went to her office. And she might not have known that I would take anywhere's <clears throat> from two to four hours every day and I would go sit at the club and I would drink my lunch and she might not have known that I didn't work until seven o'clock every night but I would leave my office about 3.30 in the afternoon and I would go to one of my favorite two watering holes and I would sit there and drink until seven and when I got home and I passed out in my chair it wasn't from a hard day at my office. But standing there that night, she knew she was going through my second 502 with me, which is a drunk driving in California. <coughs> and I'd gotten the last one about 10 months prior. And I was on my way to Santa Ana High School to see my son run in a CIF track meet. And on the way to that school, I totally passed out behind the wheel of my car and I ran a main boulevard stop in downtown Santa Ana. And when the police came and they handcuffed me and they hauled me off to jail, they found at 1 o'clock in the afternoon I had a .36 blood alcohol content. And she knew that. She also knew when I got out of jail that night, I called my insurance broker. And I told him that I'd run a boulevard that afternoon and I'd hit a tree and I'd wrecked my car rather badly. And my friend came by my office the next morning and he told me I had not hit a tree. I had hit a woman, and she knew that. She knew that previous Christmas that I was in a total blackout. I was at the Elks Club to have Christmas dinner. And just as they sat the food on the table, I yanked her right out of the chair and I said, I'm not having Christmas dinner with all these phonies. And there was a prominent attorney across the table, and I looked at him, and I said, you're the biggest phony in this room. If a person doesn't have money, property, or prestige, you won't represent them. And I looked at his wife, and I said, I don't know how you have been married to this fat pig for over 25 years. <clears throat> I will not sit at a table and eat with him. 
I can tell you when I finally went to that man to make my amends, he advised me that he was so drunk that night he didn't remember a thing I said. It's ironic at his request I've made 12 step calls on three of his brothers and they're all sober and we're saving a seat for him. But I drug her out of that club that night. She also knew that that same club would have to call her three or four nights a week to come take me home because I was too drunk to get from the bar stool out to the parking lot. And those nights I could get to the parking lot and drive home, she would have to come out in the driveway and help me in the house so my children wouldn't see their father so drunk that he couldn't even get from the driveway into the house without falling down. But more vivid in her mind that night that she shared with me months later were the nights that were becoming more frequent in that house. The kind of nights that maybe only the spouse of an alcoholic would really understand. And that's the nights that were becoming just too quiet. And she would come looking for me. And she would find me sitting in my chair with a shotgun to my stomach or a pistol in my mouth, fully loaded with a hammer pulled back and my finger on the trigger, mumbling some kind of a prayer that I could fire that gun so I wouldn't have to go back out there one more day and face life on life's terms. I can tell you tonight that I am so grateful I never pulled that trigger because if I had, I would have killed the wrong person because I'm not the same man standing here tonight that was sitting in that chair with that gun in his mouth. And I have found out over the years by going to a lot of AA meetings and listening that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But that night she said the only thing she could possibly say. Because if she had have admitted that she knew I drank that much, she would have also been admitting that she was a sick, if not sicker than I was, for staying there all of those years watching me kill myself one day at a time. After I'd been sober a while, she asked me what I thought an alcoholic was, and I said, well, there's a lot of <clears throat> definitions floating around. One I kind of like, an alcoholic is a person that drinks between drunks, and I sure <laughs> did that. But I said I'd made up my own definition for an alcoholic of my type. An alcoholic of my type is a person that drinks to solve problems that are caused by drinking. She said, if that's the case, you've been one for over four years. Because for over four years, I was sitting in bars drinking, trying to solve problems that were caused because I was sitting in bars drinking. But she said exactly what I knew she would say. And, but the next morning, I knew she knew, even if she wouldn't admit she knew. And on the way to my office, I did another first in my life. I stopped at a liquor store. And I knew the owner of that store, but I had no idea that he would be there that early in the morning. And I walked in, and there he was behind the counter. But there was no way I was going to leave that store without a bottle. And I told him I had a friend in the hospital that asked me to bring him a little bottle of vodka, but I didn't know what brand he drank. And he reached behind him and he took one off the shelf and he sat it on the counter and he looked me straight in the face and he said, Chuck, I think this will suit your friend fine. And to make it look good that morning, I got a couple of cups and some ice and some orange juice and I put it all in a big brown bag and I got in my car and I drove to my office and I sat in the parking lot and I drank it. A few mornings later, I was back in my friend's store and he was there again. But that morning, <clears throat> I bought a bigger bottle of vodka. 
And as my friend was ringing up my change, I took the cap off that bottle and I threw it in the trash. And I turned that bottle right up to my mouth. And when I got my change, I got in my car and I drove down Tustin Avenue, the main street connecting Santa Ana and Tustin, where my office was located at the time. And I was passing people that I did business with on a daily basis. And I could care less if they saw me with that bottle up to my mouth. Because I wasn't drinking it anymore because I liked it. And I wasn't drinking it anymore because it tasted good. And I wasn't even drinking it anymore because I wanted it. I was drinking it because I had to have it to get from over here to over there. And it was only 14 blocks. And even though I was running a multi-million dollar business, my biggest decision that I had to make every day was early in the morning sitting in that parking lot when I had to decide if I should drink all of that bottle then or if I should save some in case something happened later in the morning that I couldn't get out to get some more. One morning, I found myself holding that bottle with everything I had in me, praying to a God that I didn't even understand to just let me die in that car, to just let somebody that worked for me come to work and find me dead. So I wouldn't have to go back up those stairs one more day and face the humiliation that I had come to know over the last few weeks. It had become a daily routine every time my boss would call me or somebody needed a big decision made. I would get nervous and I would start gagging and throwing up. And sometimes I'd make it out to the men's room. Sometimes I'd make it out to the lobby. But most of the time, I couldn't even make it out of my own office. And I couldn't stand that humiliation one more day. Ironically, I started drinking because I thought it was heavenly and I found hell. I drank because I thought it would make me free and I became a slave to alcohol. And there at the end, I was drinking only to cope. And here I was sitting in a parked car asking God to just let me die there. He didn't see fit for me to die in the car. He saw fit that I should go on up those stairs a few more days. And I came back from lunch one afternoon and the phone was ringing longer than I thought it should. And my secretary was down the hall and I picked it up. And it was my boss's secretary asking for him. And I said, young lady, his office is in Michigan and you've reached California. She said, I know, I'm his secretary. And if he's not there, he will be any minute and I need to talk to him. And I knew good and well he wasn't flying all the way out to California to promote me. <laughs> and I had no place to go, so I just sat there. In a few minutes, he walked in the door, and I told him his secretary had called, and he said that could wait. And Ray was out of town again, and we walked down to Ray's office for privacy. And as we walked in the office, I sat down at the desk, and as he was closing the door behind him, he said, Chuck, why didn't you do something about your problem? And I said, what problem? And he got real angry. And he said, your damn drinking problem, man, you're drunk now. I can smell it. And I knew that that man had flown all the way out there to try to bluff me one more time. Because all I ever drank in the daytime was vodka, and you know you can't smell vodka. <laughs> he sat down across from me, and his voice mellowed. And he said, why? Why did you make it necessary for me to come all this way to fire you? I waited all the way through the month of February and nothing happened. I waited into March. 
And I saw Ray at the home office, and I knew how much you admired and respected him. And I asked him if he would talk to you when he got back to California. And he said he would, and he did, and I waited, and nothing happened. And I've waited into April, and I just can't wait any longer. And he opened his briefcase, and he took some documents, and he laid them on the desk between us, and he said, these are your termination papers, and this is your stock in our company. But I want you to know that all you have to do right this minute is tell me you want help. And I have the authority to put these papers back in my briefcase and take you anywhere as you want to go to get it. If you're new here tonight and you don't understand the insanity that we talk about during our alcoholism, I'll share mine with you tonight. Sitting at that desk that afternoon looking at those documents, I knew that everything I had ever worked for in my life was on the line. I knew it would only be a matter of weeks that my family would leave me. And I knew it would only be a matter of weeks that I would be in total financial bankruptcy. And in my career field, that would be job suicide. And knowing all of those things, before I would admit to that man that I had a drinking problem, I pulled those papers in front of me and I signed away everything I'd ever worked for in my life. Looking somewhat shocked, he put the papers back in his briefcase and he said he would do two things for me that were not with company policy. One, he would leave my insurance in force for one year because he had a hunch I might need it. And secondly, instead of me cleaning my office out immediately, he would meet me back the next morning about 6 o'clock so I could do so in private. And I wouldn't have to do it in front of all the people that had worked for me all those years. Evidently, I must have met him the next morning because I was told later that my car was in my driveway at my home with all my personal property from my office. And about 6.30 that evening, I had my first moment of clarity. And we call it a moment of clarity in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I honestly believe that every alcoholic like me comes to a time in their life and it may just last for a split second, but we have a moment or a minute or a time in our life that we have to decide if we're going to live or if we're going to die. And that was my moment. I was trying to decide if I should keep a commitment that I had made for that night. And I was as coherent as I could possibly be with as much alcohol as I had in my system. And my son, who was almost 18 at the time, came out of his room. And in those days, that in itself was unusual enough. But he walked right over to my chair and he stood there. <clears throat> and he stared at me for a few moments and he finally said, He said, Dad, you've lost your job. And next to your family, it probably meant more to you than anything in this world. What are you going to lose next? And without saying another word, he turned and he went back into his room. I know a lot of people get here because they see the light. And I know a lot of people get here because they feel the heat. But that night, I honestly believe I saw the light. Because all of a sudden, I realized that I was a nobody and I was going nowhere. I don't know if I hit my bottom that night in that home and with that family and up until 24 hours before I had a job that was the envy of a lot of people. But I saw my bottom and that was close enough for me. I called my then wife into the room and I said, is there anything left to drink in the house? And she said, why? I said, because there's a man at the Elks named Jim. 
And a couple of months ago, he shared with me that he had been drinking ever since he was a small kid. And he's in his late 60s, and he had gone to a hospital over in Orange called Beverly Manor, and he hadn't had a drink for almost six months. And if they can do that for that man at that hospital, they must have a miracle there. And I need help, but I also need a miracle. And I want to go there. And she left the room, and she came back a few minutes later, and she had one of those plastic iced tea glasses about that tall and about that big around, and in it she had bourbon and scotch and vodka and wine. And <laughs> I took one swallow, and I said, what are you trying to do, kill me? And she said, no, <clears throat> I just don't want anything left to drink in the house when you come home from that hospital. I have a lot of things to be grateful for today. But if somebody were to ask me what I was the most grateful for today, other than my God, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and this lady that's in my life today, it would be for that drink. Because if I had not been given that drink, if I'd have been talked out of that drink, they may have been interrupting my last drunk up until tonight. And I may have found it necessary over these years to go back out there and finish it. And I might not have been as lucky as some of you people in this room tonight that have been here before and you've gone out and you've been able to come back again. If you've been around just long enough that you may have heard some jackass at the podium or somebody in one of those discussion meetings make the statement that the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous are always revolving or swinging. Don't you believe that because that's a lie. I have a couple of friends and several acquaintances out there tonight that's been here before. And they would give anything they have left or anything they may ever get in life to be able to come back in these doors, but they just can't make it. When I read my big book, it tells me that if I continued to drink, two things could happen. One, I could go insane. Two, I could die. But there's a third thing that can happen to an alcoholic of my type that we don't talk about too much. And that's for an alcoholic like me to be able to go back out into those upholstered sewers and be able to sit there for a long, long time with a head full of AA and a belly full of booze, knowing that this program could work for me too, one day at a time. But my pride and my ego would not allow me to come back in these rooms. I used to think that was the worst thing that could happen until a year ago last October, when a friend of mine who had been around the fellowship for about 15 years, and I say around the fellowship because he never got in the program. In 15 years, he never put six months together. And he and another friend of his was coming out of Reno, Nevada, and they were both drunk, and they had a horrible accident. And he was thrown from the car, and they took his friend back to the hospital, and it was three hours later they found out he was out on the road, and they went back and got him. And he's laying in this hospital and he's totally paralyzed from his neck down. And his brain works as well as yours and mine, but his mouth won't work. And you stand at the bed and you look at him and you say, but Jack, you never have to take another drink as long as you live. And he's 46 years old. November, a year later, Barbara and I were in Long Beach and I was sharing and a man came up after the meeting and he said, Chuck, I work at the Long Beach Naval Hospital and we just gave your friend a one-year chip and he's still paralyzed from the neck down and he still can't talk. This is the easier, softer way. There are 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and if you leave them there, you'll die. But if you'll take those steps out and you use them every day in everything you do, you'll make it. Because the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous is what gets us here and it's the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous that keeps us sober. 
Within an hour, I was at that hospital. And my son took me into a room called detox. And in that room, I had my second moment of clarity. I had never seen the 12 steps of AA in my life. But that night I took that first step as honest and as complete and as thorough as any human being could ever be asked to take it. Because when my son got me undressed and laid me in that bed, when my head hit that pillow that night, I said, thank God it's all over. Thank God. I don't have to get up in the morning. And I don't have to go back out there and lie and cheat and do all the things I've had to do over the years because of my alcohol. And I passed out. And I came to about a week or so later and I was strapped in that bed from my feet to my head because it seems there at the end I was taking Valium by the handfuls, trying not to drink so much And when I opened my eyes, I was facing a doorway that led out into a hall. And the first thing I saw go past my door was a rabbit about five foot two hopping down the hall. And I let out a god-awful scream and, and Annie the nurse came running into my room and I told her what just went by my door. And she started laughing and she looked at me and she said, but Chuck, it's Easter Sunday. Now, now I find that humorous tonight myself. <coughs> but let me assure you, laying in a bed in an institution strapped down from my feet to my head and having a nurse tell me it was Easter Sunday and the last conscious thing I could remember laying there was locking my office to go home for Christmas. It scared the living hell out of me. And I hope I never forget that feeling as long as I live. I stayed in that hospital a long time. And a lot of things happened to me there, but time only allows me to touch on a couple of them that are the most important to me. There was an old counselor there, and I use the term old with the utmost reverence because he's my number two sponsor today, and he celebrated 44 years in our fellowship last February. And I walked into John Mack's office one morning, and, and he told me I had to call my boss and tell him where I was. And I said, John, it won't do any good. And he looked at me and he said, in that case, dummy, it won't do any harm, will it? <laughs> so you call him. And I did. And he said he knew where I was. And he said he was trying to do something for me, but he didn't know what, if anything, could be done. But he'd let me know in a day or two. And a couple of days later, he called me at the hospital. And he said, Chuck, I went all the way to the president of our company. And we called the hospital. And we talked to your doctor, Max Schneider, and He explained to us this thing called alcoholism. And he convinced us that if you want to do something about your life, you've taken the first step by checking into that hospital. And for that reason, we've torn up your termination papers and we've put you on medical leave. And we don't care if it takes 60 days or 6 months, your job and your office will be waiting for you when you feel capable of coming back. It took me a long time to try to understand the forgiveness that was being done by those people at that puzzle palace and people that didn't even understand alcoholism because I've come to know that it's hard enough for us that have it to understand it. It's impossible for those that don't have it to understand it. The other thing that man did for me, he knew I couldn't leave that hospital without a sponsor. And if you're new tonight and you don't know what a sponsor is, they're the ones that come in after the war is over and ban at the wounded. (laughs) Shame on me. 
John could have asked John could have asked 100 men plus to come and take me to my first AA meeting, but he only asked one man. And that man had no idea who he was picking up except my name was Chuck and I would be ready at 7 o'clock. And when I walked up to that nurse's station, he said, Welcome, Chuck. I've been saving a seat for you for over eight and a half years. Frank O. apostrophe R. was not only one of my oldest drinking friends, he was also my family attorney and I saw him almost on a daily basis. And never once did he ever try to force me into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. He took me to my first meeting, the Wednesday night Laguna speaker meeting, which is still our home group. And I had no idea who spoke that night or what was said. But I know what happened after that meeting. Frank dropped his wife Carolyn off at their house. And he took me to an all-night coffee shop. And in that coffee shop, he practiced the ultimate principle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that ultimate principle is not me stand, standing here talking to all you folks. And it's not me or somebody like me standing at some huge convention talking to several thousands of people. The ultimate principle of Alcoholics Anonymous is one drunk talking to another drunk. And that night, in that coffee shop, Frank told me his whole story. That night, he convinced me that this program would work for me too one day at a time if I wanted it. Because this program is not for the people that need it, it's for the people that want it. And if I decided that I wanted this program, I should get in the program and not on the program as soon as I got out of that hospital. And if you don't know the difference of being in something or on something, you just visualize yourself on a submarine when that sucker goes under. <laughs> You'd know the difference real quick. That night, through my friend Frank, God gave me the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know it's a gift because I'm so grateful for it, and you cannot be grateful for something you did yourself. That night, Frank saved my life, and he didn't charge me one dime. Twenty-five years ago and a half, Bob saved Frank's life, and he didn't charge Frank a dime. That's why today I have to go anywhere within my physical or financial power to give back to you what you gave to me, and I have to do it for free and for fun. I'd been sober, I finally got out of that hospital. And I was sober six months and I was concerned about this thing called God. I was told I had to go to a meeting every single night for six solid months. I went to a meeting every single night for two and a half years and my two sponsors took me to a baseball game. It was my first night I didn't go to a meeting. But I was thinking about this thing called God because... I had made the mistake at my first stag meeting of mentioning God. And some old timer looked at me and said, there's only two things you need to know about God. There is and you ain't. Now just shut up. <laughs> I usually say, sometimes I'll say the reason this program took off so good, there wasn't any old timers around to mess it up. <laughs> but I love them. I thought a lot about God. And I pulled up at that Elks Club that I started having lunch at it for a different reason every day. Because now I was meeting my two sponsors and a couple other guys in our fellowship. And I pulled up in that lot and it was the most gorgeous October day I'd seen in Orange County for a long time. And as I started to get out of my car my coat and my tie felt like they were choking me. And I took them off and I laid them on the seat of the car and I rarely if ever went in that place without a suit on in those days. 
on a work day. And as I turned to go toward that building, I felt like I was lifted six feet off the ground. And as I started toward the building, it was no further than that wall back there, and it seemed like it took me 15 minutes to make that short journey. And I walked in and I sat down with Bob and Frank and Jack and Bill, and I have no idea what was said at lunch that day. And I don't even know if I ate lunch or not. And I went back to my office and my secretary shared with me months later that my normal routine in those days, I had five lines on my telephone. And all day long there would be calls going out all over the country and calls coming in. And she said, I sat in my office for four solid hours and I didn't make one single call out and more ironic, I didn't get one single call in. And I went to my house that night, and as I stepped in the front door, my son was screaming something at his mother in the kitchen. <clears throat> and he turned and he yelled something at me when I stepped in the house. And when he did, I felt my feet come down and touch the carpet in the hall. And I turned and I went into my study. And I closed the door and I sat in my chair. And I cried as hard as I had ever cried in my life because I knew that I had spent the day with God and I knew everything was going to be okay in my life. I knew I wasn't somebody bad trying to get good. I was somebody sick trying to get well. I realized that night that going to a lot of meetings was no excuse for work, not working the program. And I found out that night that sobriety would do until surrender came along. And that night I totally surrendered my will and my life over to the care of God and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I came to understand that night what it meant by taking my life and I had to peel it like an onion and I had to uncover, discover, and discard. I had been told that over and over and over. I was told that I am only as sick as my secrets. That I have to take those secrets out and I have to lay them on the table. Including that one that's way back there behind the belly button where that little pygmy lives that hangs on to it and he's going to take it to the grave with you. I have to take that one out and I have to lay it on the table because if I can do that, my life will become heaped up, pressed down and running over. And I found out what that th thing meant by discarding after you discover because I learned a lot of people went outside the program going to these other things, and they all had one thing in common. And what they had in common, they called themselves self-improvement programs. And I couldn't understand, after being taught the way I was, how anybody can improve on something God made. And it was my job to just discover who I am. My life since that night has been absolutely fantastic. But let me tell you, I have more problems today than I ever had in my life, but I have a better class of problems today. <laughs> that 18-year-old son that took me to that hospital became 22. And on his 22nd birthday, I took him to dinner. And after dinner, he went his way and I went my way. And I was standing at a meeting in Tustin, at a hospital sharing like I'm doing tonight and a phone rang in the hospital and they came and got me and said it was urgent. And I went to the telephone and it was a deputy sheriff friend of mine at the Orange County Jail and he told me they had my son there and he stood a chance to go to prison for a long time because he had violated a probation that I didn't even know he was on and he was still living in my house. But he told me I could take him home until the hearing date if I would come before he got off duty. And I got in my car and I drove to that jail as fast as I could. And when I got there, I was more afraid than I'd ever been in my life. 
because I found out that my son was so suicidal that I couldn't leave him. And I couldn't go to work Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. And Wednesday night I told his mother I had to get to an AA meeting and he knew I'd be going to Laguna to my home group and he came out of his room and he said, Dad, you can't leave me in this house tonight by myself. Can I go with you just for the ride? And driving down the Laguna that night, I shared things with that young man I had never shared with anyone but my, my two sponsors. And I told him I was sorry about all the track meets and ball games I never got to. And I thought that because I took care of him and his sisters so well in life that one day he'd become 21 and we could sit at the club and we could have a few drinks and become friends and all of that other stuff would be forgiven. But because of my commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous, I hoped and I prayed that that would never take place. And we got down to Laguna that night, and they had their normal 250 people. And when they asked for newcomers, my son stood up, and he said, My name is Chuck, and I'm an alcoholic and a full-blown drug addict. And when he sat down, he put his arms around my neck, and he said, Dad, I want what you've got. Now, he didn't work the program the way I think he should, so I went to Al-Anon, and they saved my life. <laughs> Eight years later, I was shearing up in San Francisco area, and I drove because I wanted to bring a baby home with me that I, he was an elderly man that I just loved dearly and he wouldn't fly. And I pulled up in my driveway and I went in the house and I found my son sitting in my chair with a busted head and a split mouth and a bleeding nose. And after eight years of being around the program, his addict mind told him he could drink again and he had totaled his car. That's been a long time ago and just as recent as a couple of weeks ago, he's back in trouble again. And there's nothing I can do about that. All I can do is what you've taught me to do. All I can do is surrender every day. Because I know yesterday's surrender won't work today. And today's surrender is certainly not going to work tomorrow. It's a daily surrender. And that's the way my life has to be. Two years ago on my birthday, which is this month, I was talking at a place down in Oceanside, California area. And after that meeting, I walked straight down to this lady and I looked at her and she was standing there barefooted in torn jeans. Not really. And I said to her, I said, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. What's your name? She had a home in Oceanside, and I walked out of a home in Santa Ana after a many, 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 many year marriage because I come to realize that my life had been an absolute blank. I started reading in that big book about being happy, joyous, and free, and to thine own self be true. I was just like that big ship in Long Beach called the Queen Mary. When they brought that ship over to redo it and they took those smokestacks off and they sat them on the docks, they just crumbled and went to the floor. Because all those years they had been painting the outside, making them pretty, and the whole insides were rusting away. And I had the homes and I had the cars and the clothes and the jewelry and inside I was just dying. Inside I was just a nobody. And by taking the steps of this program and talking to the people and doing what I felt was best for Chuck, I had the courage to make a move. Our life today is the best it's ever been. She drove me to the airport Tuesday, and we live in Dana Point, a gorgeous resort-type area right on the ocean. We both went from big homes into a small, or big houses into a small home but it's ours. And driving down that coast for 20 miles, we can look out at the Pacific Ocean and it's absolutely gorgeous. And everything belongs to Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything I have today belongs to you. You loan it to me to use one day at a time as long as I practice these principles to the best of my ability.
Before I got here, I would have sold anything I had for one bottle of vodka. But tonight, there's not one newcomer in this room that doesn't mean more to me than everything I had before I got here. My mentor and my dearest friend Chuck used to tell a story that is symbolic of Alcoholics Anonymous to me. And he would tell that story if he could do it without crying. Chuck used to go to about the same places every year to talk, as a lot of people do when they've been around a while. And one of those places he would go to was a place called Victorville out in the high desert in California. And he went out there one night to talk, and as he went in, he saw this man making coffee, and he was very unattractive because he had a cancer that was eating up his face. And he went back the next year, and the same man was making coffee, and he did that five years in a row. And the fifth year when he got there, he got there early, and it was just him and this man there. And he asked him, he said, let me ask you something. He said, I've been coming here for five years, and every time I come here, you're making the coffee. Are you the only one in this group that does that? And the man looked at him with tears in his eyes, and he said, I thought you knew. He said, I'm not even an alcoholic. He said, five years ago, I wandered in here off the street because of the laughter. And I was here a couple of weeks, and I told him, I'm not an alcoholic. Can I come back? And they put their arms around me, and they held me, and they hugged me, and they said, you're welcome here anytime. And for five years, he said, I've been here every night, every week, making the coffee. You see, the only reason I'm here tonight, alive, is because a drunk took the time to come to a hospital and take me to a meeting. The only reason I'm here alive tonight is because a drunk took the time to sit in a coffee shop and tell me his whole story. And the only reason I'm here tonight is because a drunk took the time to sit me on his lap and rock me to sleep when I wanted a drink more than I wanted anything in this world. And I'm sure as long as I take the time to come be with you, that my life will continue to be heaped up, pressed down, and running over. And I love you very much. God bless you and keep coming back.